go to God in prayer. Lord, Jesus, you are strong and you are kind. If you were kind and not strong, then you could not keep us. If you were strong but not kind, then we could not trust you. But we can always run to you, Jesus. Because you are strong and kind and good and faithful. And so we pray that as we look at your strength and we look at your kindness in this passage, that you would give us faith to trust you and to run to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. To be a Christian is to be utterly dependent and utterly secure. To be utterly dependent and utterly secure. As human beings, we tend to think that those two things don't go together. We want to be independent so we can be secure. We don't have to rely upon other people or rely upon someone else. We can do it in our own strength. If we are independent, then we are safe. Security comes from the self. Security comes from not needing someone to give you food, not needing someone to give you shelter, not needing someone to provide for you. You can do it yourself, or so we think. And there is some truth to this in the fallen world. When you depend upon someone, you're only secure insofar as that person is dependable, insofar as that person is good. If you put your trust and rely on a person who's either weak, who's fickle, or who's selfish, then you are not safe. You are not secure. They could be too weak to help. They could change their mind. Or they could want to use you for their own purposes. What makes a difference is the quality of person that you depend upon. That's what determines whether you're safe or not. Who are you depending upon? And with God, we find that he is more sufficient than all of our needs. He is utterly dependable. He is more than capable of upholding us, of sustaining us, and of keeping us safe. To depend upon God is to be safe in God forever. That's what Jesus shows us in John 10, 22 through 29. And he shows how the reality of God's sovereignty provides security for God's sheep. The fact that God is a sovereign God who rules over the nations, that God has purposes going back before eternity passed, shows that his sheep are utterly secure. And so we're going to work through the passages I just read. And as we work through these verses, we're going to see two truths this morning. The first is the reason for unbelief. And the second is the security of Jesus' sheep. The reason for unbelief, and we're going to spend a lot of time on that one. And then we're going to look at the security of Jesus' sheep. Jesus in John 10 pulls back the curtain. So we get a glimpse into eternity past. To be able to see that our God keeps his people safe. 
But before we see the security of Jesus' sheep, Jesus first shows the reason for unbelief. He shows why people don't believe in him. Look at verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Verse 22 shows a shift in time and location. So this passage carries on themes that we've been seeing already. Just the imagery of shepherd and sheep goes back. But what's happening here is happening a month or two later and in a different time of the year than what was happening last week when we read. This is the Feast of Dedication. That's what we know as Hanukkah. This is not a biblical feast. This is a feast that the Jews, after the closing of the Old Testament, established to remember the purification of the temple. This is taking place in Jerusalem, and Jesus is still there. The feast is not what's significant. As we read the Gospel of John, there's lots of feasts, and the focus is never on the feast. The feasts provide the context for the conversations. And that's where Jesus is focusing on. It moves the narrative forward. The Jews ask a question. How long will you keep us in suspense? There's like, Jesus, stop baiting us. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. If you really are the king of Israel, if you really are the long-awaited Messiah, tell us. Say, I am the Christ. That's what we want to hear. Now, we may read this, and we may think, this is not an unfair question to ask. If you are trying to figure out who's supposed to be king, right of rule and clarity is helpful. Right? You don't want to say, oh, this guy says he's the king, but this guy says he's the king, or we think this guy's the king, but they think this guy's the king. Right? If you want to know who the king is, clarity is helpful. But the Jews are not asking this in order to know who the king is. They're not asking this to know whether or not to worship Jesus or whether or not to follow Jesus. Jesus has not been unclear about who he is. Their premise of their question is false. He has told them many, 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 many things that should lead them to clearly say, oh, this is who Jesus is. Just in the last two chapters alone, listen to what Jesus has said about himself. He said he's the light of the world, John 8, 12. He's the son of man, John 8, 28, John 9, 37. He was sent by the Father, John 8, 29. He existed before Abraham, John 8, 56. He is the I am, the God of Abraham, John 8, 48, 58. He came into the world for judgment, John 9, 39. He's the good shepherd of Israel and the nations, John 10, 14 through 16, he has authority to lay down his life and authority to take it up again, John 10, 18. And he's been charged with a mission from God, the Father, John 10, 18. 
The Jews have all this information, and Jesus in the Gospel of John, and that's just the last couple chapters, in the Gospel of John, we have all the information we need to follow Jesus. He has been crystal clear about what he came to do and who he is, and we have all the data that we need to make an informed decision to lay down our lives for him. And to follow after him for the rest of our lives. But the Pharisees aren't looking to follow Jesus. That's not why they're asking the question. They're looking to trap Jesus. They've already accused him of being demonic. They've accused him of blasphemy. In a moment, they're going to pick up stones in order to stone him. This is not faith-seeking understanding. This is unbelief-seeking motivation. They're looking for Jesus to say something so they can pounce and kill him. And Jesus points this out. He shows them their unbelief, and he shows them the reason behind their unbelief. Jesus answered them, I told you. He's not granting the premise of their claim. He said, I did tell you. And you do not believe. He's told them with his words. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. He's shown them with his actions. But you do not believe. Because you are not among my sheep. Jesus' words and his works bear clear witness to who he is. But the Jews do not believe. And why? Why do they not believe? Jesus gives the reason. Because you are not among my sheep. Read those words carefully. Jesus does not say that they do not believe with the result that they are not among Jesus' sheep. Jesus says the reason why the result of belief doesn't come is because they are not among his sheep. Being precedes believing. Because they are not Jesus' sheep, therefore... They do not believe. What is Jesus talking about here? What does he mean by this? Jesus is talking about the doctrine of predestination and election. Before the foundation of the world, God has chosen those who are to believe in Jesus. He has elected those to be saved. They are saved by grace through faith. They must believe. But the reason they believe is because they are chosen. They are not chosen because they believe. The Gospel of John teaches this. We've seen this already as we've worked through John chapter 6. Jesus says, No one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. Of your own will and of your own ability, you cannot come to God. God must draw you. And God does not draw all people in the same way. Every person that God draws will come to Jesus. As John 6:37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. God gives people to Jesus. That's why they come to him. All that God gives will come. This is not a general giving of mankind. This is a particular giving of individuals. Unbelief Jesus has already said in the Gospel of John, springs from not being of God. John 8, 47, whoever is of God 
hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The reason you don't hear is that you are not of God. It's not you don't hear with the result that you're not of God. The reason that you don't hear is because you're not of God. And those who are of the truth listen to Jesus. We'll see in John 18, Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What Jesus is saying here is that God has purposed a people for his own possession before the foundation of the world, that he has set them apart to believe in him. This is the doctrine of election. And in Romans 9, the apostle Paul shows that this is not just a gospel of John thing. We already saw in Isaiah, John did it in our pastoral prayer and scripture reading. God chose Israel. Here in Romans 9, we see that Paul's teaching this and he says, it depends not, election depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Our election unto salvation is not dependent on us. Our election unto salvation is dependent upon God. Before the foundation of the world, God in his free and sovereign grace chose people to believe in him. This was not based on anything that we'd done, including faith. Paul says it's simply in God's free mercy. Now I know that this is a difficult doctrine for many of you. It's difficult emotionally. It's difficult intellectually to wrestle through and say, how does that work? What does that mean? So I want to be very careful in saying what we don't mean and what the Bible doesn't mean when it talks about predestination and election. It does not mean that people are robots or that we are not responsible for our actions or for our sin or for our choices. The Bible teaches that we are responsible Judgment of sin is based upon responsibility for sin. The Pharisees were utterly responsible for their unbelief. They could not point the finger back to God. Jesus looks at them and is going to pronounce judgment upon them because they do not believe. The doctrine of election does not mean that we should not plead with all people to be saved. There may be some of you in this room who aren't trusting in Jesus. We would urge you and plead with you to trust in Jesus, to turn from your sins and believe in Jesus. In fact, just in a few verses, in verse 37, Jesus is going to call the same people that he said, the reason you do not believe is because you're not among my sheep. He's going to call them to believe. John 10, 37, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. We call everyone to turn to Jesus and be saved. The Bible teaches there's an attitude that says, well, if God is the one who chooses, then evangelism means nothing. Then we should never plead with people. God's going to save people no matter what. The Bible teaches that if that's your attitude, you're wrong. God calls us to plead with all people from every tribe and nation and background. We offer the free gospel to all people so they would taste and see that the Lord is good. And Jesus 
does that. He keeps pleading with these Jews to repent and believe. And this does not mean, this doctrine does not mean that God does not care about those whom he has not chosen. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. God loves even his enemies. In his mercy and his love, he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. God is full of steadfast love and faithfulness to all people, including those whom he has not chosen. If that's what predestination does not mean, then what does it mean? What predestination and election means is that we are utterly dependent upon God and his grace and in his mercy. From start to finish, we are dependent upon him. We are saved by grace through faith, and even that faith itself is a gift from God. That's Jesus' point in pointing out that the Pharisees are not part of his sheep. His point is not dismissive. His point is not merely to make a theological abstraction. His point is pastoral. He sees their arrogance. He sees their pride. And he wants to show them that they need to humble themselves. I love how D.A. Carson puts it. He's a New Testament scholar and he says, In what is in view is an unambiguous rejection of self-sufficiency in the matter of belonging among Jesus' sheep. You are not sufficient in yourself. You cannot do anything in yourself to make you belong among Jesus' sheep, which means that we should be humble before God. We should humble ourselves before him. That's why Jesus says this to the Jews. You and I are not independent creatures. We are not the masters of our soul the captains of our own fate. We are dependent upon the merciful grace of God. And we need to humble ourselves and we need to open our hands before the Lord and we say, Lord, what what do we have that we have not received? We bring nothing to the table but empty hands. We're spending a long time in this section because I know that this is difficult. But I want to spend just a few more moments briefly touch on a question that I'm sure you may be asking, but that the text doesn't address. And that is, why does God not choose everyone? Why does God not choose everyone? The Apostle Paul cautions us towards humility in answering this question. He looks at God's eternal purposes, and he acknowledges that God's ways are higher than our ways. And that we should not be above God, pointing down and saying, you need to give account for yourself. But rather, we humble ourselves before God and look up and say, your ways are inscrutable. In Romans 11, after talking about God's eternal purposes in Romans 9 through 11, he ends it by saying, oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? So as we approach questions like this, we should approach them with humility. We should approach them by saying, Lord, I am free to hold on to two truths and acknowledge that I may not be able to answer how that works. Because you know, Lord, how that works. 
But the Apostle Paul doesn't stop there. The same Paul who says, who has known the mind of the Lord, does wrestle through this issue in Romans 9, which we read from earlier. And he picks up the question. He says, why does God still find fault? If it depends not on human will or exertion, but God who has mercy, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And he says in verse 22, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He's giving the reason here. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Paul's point in verse 23 is that in choosing some and not all, God's free mercy is highlighted. It is clearer because he shows it to some and not all. The particularity, the specificity is what highlights God's grace. Now, this is a poor illustration, and it breaks down. But imagine if a husband loved his wife, or a wife loved her husband, in the exact same way that they loved all people. You would look at that, and you would say, there is a glory to the particular, specific love that a husband has for his wife that is highlighted because it is focused on a person. And it's not the same as with all people. The character of a loving husband should be consistent. If this husband is truly good and truly faithful, then he's not going to be a jerk to all other people. He will love all other people. But he will not love all other people in the exact same way that he loves his wife. That covenant, focused, specific love is highlighted precisely because it's different than the way that he loves all other people. God's love for his people is not generic, it's not general. God's love for his people is focused. And specific. That means we can say God doesn't just love people. We can say God loves me. God delights in me. Jesus died for me. It is not Jesus died to make it possible for me. It is not God's love extends for the possibility of me. It is me. If you are in Christ Jesus, God's love is focused and specific, in particular. And it's the specific choice to choose some and not all that highlights the glory of the focused love of Jesus for his people. And one final word. For those of you who are struggling with this doctrine, I would say, don't lose sight of who God is. Some of us can hear this, I know this. Some of us can hear this and can say, well, if that's true of God then this is true of God. And they go in a direction that the Bible does not go. The Bible teaches that God is good. He is merciful. He is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. He is gracious. He is patient. He is kind. He is full of joy. 
Don't let a doctrine like this obscure your view of who God is. He can be both utterly sovereign and utterly good. You may not be able to reach a satisfying conclusion in your brain to be able to work this out. And I would say, hold clear to the goodness of God in what we see in the scriptures. Sink your roots deep in the character of God. And don't lose sight of who he is. The main reason why Jesus is saying these words, I think is to help us do that is to highlight the absolute security of Jesus' sheep because God is good. Because God is completely sovereign over his sheep, they are completely secure and safe in him. And that's the second point that we see, the security of Jesus' sheep. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Jesus' sheep are those who hear his voice and follow him. This is just a reminder, among all that I said before, that faith is absolutely essential to you being a sheep of Jesus. If you do not believe in Jesus then you are not one of Jesus' sheep. Faith is absolutely essential. It's just not the foundation. If you're wondering, after all I said, how can I be sure that I'm a sheep of Jesus? I question this. I wrestle with this. How can I be sure that God's chosen me? Jesus would say, do you believe in me? Are you following me? If the answer is yes, I do, then you can have confidence that you belong to Jesus' sheep. Jesus' sheep hear his voice and they follow him. And just listen to the way that both the Father and the Son keep their sheep secure. Jesus says that he gives them eternal life and they will never perish. Not one sheep who belongs to Jesus is ever lost. His record is perfect. He has never had a sheep perish. It's amazing to think about. In the history of the world, Jesus has never let one fall through the cracks. All who belong to him, he gives eternal life and they will never perish. And Jesus says, no one will snatch them out of his hand. Christian, you do not need to fear the devil. You don't. The evil one is real, he is powerful. And he can make your earthly life painful and difficult, but he can never touch what's most important about you if you belong to Jesus. He cannot snatch you out of Jesus' hand. With all his might and all his strength, he can't pry open Jesus' finger a little bit. You are utterly safe in Christ. And because Jesus and the Father are one, we're going to look at that next week. Some of you are wondering, why would you stop in 29? The answer is, I didn't. John did when he made the sermon calendar. But it's because we're going to spend all next week looking at that. Because Jesus and the Father are one, no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand either. The Father elects. He chooses Jesus' sheep before the foundation of the world, and he gives them to him. 
and no one can take Jesus' sheep away. Kids, how many of you uh, can do the monkey bars? Archie, I like it. May, uh, how many of you can do the monkey bars? Okay, how many of you can't do the monkey bars? I would put myself in this list. Imagine that you're trying to go across this long string of monkey bars. And as you go, you start off strong, and then your grip begins to weaken. And all of us feel that sort of panic moment where we can tell, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to fall, I'm going to fall. If you were standing there on your own in the middle, hanging there, you would say, I'm tough enough, I'm strong enough, every one of us would fall at one point. John has really strong forearms. I have no idea how this man does it. I've seen him swing on monkey bars. Right? Even John would fall if he tried to stay there all day. Right? Not one of us can keep ourselves on the monkey bars the entire time. And if we tried to and said, I can do this, we're going to fall. But kids, imagine that you're trying to go through and all of a sudden your parent comes around and grabs your waist. Is that easier or harder to do the monkey bars at that point? It's easier. It depends on how strong the parent is. That's true. (laughs) It's a good point. Your dad's really strong. (laughs) If your parent grabs you, the monkey bars are easy. Now, if you were there and you're doing the monkey bars and you're like, look, no hands. I can do it one-handed. And all along, it's your parents who are grabbing you, right? That's foolish. No one's, no one's tricked. Your security and your safety comes from being dependent upon your parents' strength to keep you. This is how it is with Jesus. We may fear that our faith will fail. We may fear that our grip will loosen. But Jesus says, I will hold you fast. I will grab you. I will bring you safely. Now, it would be absolutely foolish for a Christian to walk through life arrogant, being like, I can do the monkey bars. Look at me. Jesus got me. Like, that's missing the point. What a Christian should do is to say, thank you, Jesus, for keeping me. Thank you for your strength to hold me. Thank you that you sustain me. And there is such freedom and safety from seeing Jesus as strong enough and good enough to do this. There are some of you here who struggle with anxiety. You can lay in bed and wondering, what will tomorrow bring? What challenges will I deal with? What difficulties will I face? And this may even show itself in questions of faith, of how do I know that I'm going to keep trusting in Jesus? How do I know I won't shipwreck my faith Our temptation can be to try and solve the problem by ourselves and saying, all right, I know the way to not be anxious. I figure it out. I make a plan. I get a list and I try and break the big thing down into smaller things and check it off as I go. Christian, you are already completely and utterly safe. You don't need to be anxious. 
And in your anxiety, you can recognize that even if the worst of things happens to you tomorrow, your God will keep you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will hold you fast. And this not only frees us from anxiety, but it frees us to be able to love people sacrificially. We can pour ourselves out like Jesus did for the sake of other people and know that even the greatest human rejection, even the greatest persecution can't touch our souls. We are safe in God. The most painful conversations doesn't affect our security in Jesus. Your safety in Jesus allows for you to take short-term risk for the sake of Christ, to make short-term sacrifices. I love what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. Romans 8 is chock full with God's sovereignty. And what he does with that is he says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he stacks all of these terrible things, tribulation, persecution, nakedness, danger, famine, sword, even death. And Paul says, even in death, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You do not have to fear what other people can do to you. You do not have to fear what other people will think of you. You do not have to fear what tomorrow will hold. You can take God-glorifying risk knowing that your family's rejection can't separate you from the love of God. Nasty things being spoken about you to your face or behind your back can't separate you from the love of God. Loss of a job cannot separate you from the loss of God. If our security depended upon us and our independence, we would walk through life on edge, never wanting to say something that's going to upset people, never wanting to put ourselves in a difficult situation. But because Jesus keeps his sheep, we can press in. We can take risks. We can walk in faith, knowing that he will hold us fast. To be dependent upon God is to be secure in God. That is good news for God's people. Let's pray. Lord, we do praise you. We praise you that you are the one who keeps us. You hold us fast. And you will never let us go. And no one, not even ourselves can snatch us from your hand. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.